So last week we examined Colossians 1, 15 through 23. That section is often considered the greatest description of who Jesus is. Paul is the author, and he goes into detail about how Jesus is God, the creator of all things. And not only did he create all things, but all things exist in him. And not only do all things exist in him, but he also died to reconcile you back to himself. And so the idea is that he created all things, and he created all things with this perfect relationship with him. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God, there created a a chasm between us and God. And each one of us have gone through that same rebellion. Each one of us have rebelled against God in some form or another. It might have been a small rebellion. You might think that you're a pretty good person, and you might be a pretty good person next to the murderer on death row. But each one of us, at some point in our life, has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And as a result, each one of us have been separated from God. But you are his creation, created in him for his own pleasure. And so he did not leave you to that separation, but he came and he paid the price so that you could be reconciled back to him, so that you could have a perfect relationship with him once again. So he created all things. All things exist in him. All things were created for him. And he came and he paid the price for your sin, for your rebellion against him, so that you could be reconciled back to him. But not only did he die, he rose again. And he rose again so that the whole world could start in a recreation process. Because when sin entered the world, the world was broken. And God is in the process of recreating the world. And it began with his own glorified body when he rose from the dead. This resurrection is attested to by over 500 witnesses. And there is no historical record arguing against the resurrection. The evidence is so overwhelming that Jesus rose from the dead that even atheists who study the subject oftentimes become believers. Even many of the Pharisees who took part in his crucifixion became believers. The evidence is overwhelming. But with the evidence overwhelming, why have there always been skeptics? From the day he rose until today, there have always been skeptics. And that is what we will talk about today as we take a little break from our For Him and By Him series and we jump into Palm Sunday, which is also known as the Triumphal Entry. We'll take a look at two different Gospels, first John 11, so if you want to turn with me to John 11, 47 through 53, and then we'll flip on over to Luke. And what we're looking for is some reactions to Jesus. That's what we're going to examine as we look at these two pieces of Scripture. So just to get a little bit of background, Jesus ministered for three and a half years throughout Israel. During these three and a half years, he begins with what's called the Great Galilean Ministry. That lasts about 18 months. And during that time, he's going through Galilee. The reason why he goes through Galilee is there's more Jews living in Galilee than 
in Judea. So he's going throughout Galilee, and he's doing all of these miraculous signs and wonders. Those signs and wonders authenticate his claim. And he has two very difficult claims to swallow. That he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh. Those are the two claims that are very difficult to swallow. Let me ask you, if someone showed up, and they walked through those doors, and they said, hey guys, I'm the Messiah, God come in the flesh, what would your reaction be? I think we would all think like, okay, we need to call the mental institute because we got a crazy guy on our hands, right? Now, what if this guy starts to do all kinds of signs, all these miracles, all these wonders? Then we might start saying, hey, there might be a little bit of weight to this claim. So that's what Jesus is doing. All of his miracles, all of his signs are there to authenticate his claim that he is the Messiah, God, come in the flesh. So he does that. He's going around. And then there are two major rejections. The first one is by the Pharisees, and they claim that, that, that he is doing these signs and these miracles by Satan himself. That's the first rejection. The second rejection is found in John 6, and it's when the people reject him because they want to take him as their own king. Now, most people will say, wait a second, how is that rejecting Jesus? Well, it's rejecting his offer because he offers to be the Messiah, but they say, we want you as our Messiah, but we want you as Messiah on our terms. And the, the Jew of that day was looking for the Messiah that was going to be the political deliverer. They wanted a conquering king that was going to overthrow Rome. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for a personal savior that would save them from their own sin. So they take Jesus' offer. They, they, they see his signs that authenticate his claim. They say, yes, this is amazing. The Messiah has come. We'll, we'll accept you as our Messiah, but we're going to do a counter offer. We're going to take you on our terms. I always like to compare it with offering my kids broccoli for dinner. How many parents have struggled getting their kids to eat broccoli? So let's say I offer my child broccoli for dinner. And they say, Dad, I accept your offer of broccoli if you put chocolate syrup on it. Now, did they accept my offer of broccoli? Well, no, they accepted them on their own conditions, on their own terms, right? So that's what happens. So they, they reject Jesus' offer, and they give him a counteroffer, and he says, no, that's not good enough. You have to, I am God, come in the flesh, I am the Messiah, you have to accept the entire offer, me, as your personal Savior that's going to save you from sin. And so from that moment on, his ministry changes. And he starts in what's called the private preparation era. During this time, he's actually leaving the open, public signs that authenticate. He's, he leaves his open teaching. He begins to teach in parables. And the, during this time, he's trying to instruct his disciples about his upcoming death. This culminates with the final exam. The final exam is Jesus takes his apostles and he says, who do you say I am? And they get the answer right. You are the Messiah, God come in the flesh. And he says, you're right, and guess what? I'm going to die. And their reaction is, no, this can't be. So then he enters into a new phase, which is kind of a mixed era. For about six months, he still is instructing. He's still giving 
parables to his disciples, but he also goes into a couple different areas, Judea and Perea, and he begins to instruct them in Judea and Perea, and he begins to openly teach that he is Messiah. In fact, it gets so tense that they try to kill him in Judea, so he goes up to Perea, and while he's in Perea and, and the Decapolis, some Pharisees actually come and say, hey, they want to kill you here too. And during this time, a messenger comes, and they, they, the messenger lets him know that Lazarus is dying. And it's during this story that I want to pick up. So he has been ministering throughout Israel for three and a half years. He has had this claim that he continues to make, that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh, and he has been conducting miracles to prove his claim. Then this messenger comes and lets him know Lazarus is dying. He has a conversation with his disciples that Lazarus is, in fact, actually dead. But we're going to go back to Judea. So Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was in Judea. It's about a, journey, a Sabbath journey, just outside of a Sabbath journey's walk from Jerusalem. He says, let's go back. Well, they tried to kill him last time he was there, so his apostles are a little bit afraid to go back. But they decide to go back. And when they come back, they come to this scene. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, during those times, the first week of mourning was a very intense week. It was very intentional mourning. We've kind of lost, I think we could look back to Second Temple Judaism and, and uh, get some great ideas for how we could go through some grief and some mourning. But this was an intense and intentional mourning period. And actually what they would do first is they would take perfumes and they would put perfumes on the body because they didn't have embalming fluids. The body would begin to stink pretty quickly. Pretty, it would decay pretty rapidly. And so they would take perfumes and they would take strips of linen and they would lay the strips of linen all over this body with the perfumes. And on the fourth day they shut up the tomb. Now, the tomb was a cave. It's not typically what we think of. It was a cave. They'd let the body sit in that cave until it totally decomposed. Then they would take the bones, and they would put it in a bone box, and they would put the bone box in with the rest of the bones of their family. And so you could reuse this tomb several times. Several generations could go through this tomb. So Lazarus is at the part where he's not only dead, but he's stinking dead. Not only that, but because they were so close to Jerusalem there would be a lot of Jewish leadership that would come and partake. Lazarus was a wealthy man. He was a well-known man. He, apparently, he was well-liked. There would be a lot of Jewish leaders that would come from Jerusalem up to where Lazarus was and partake in this intentional grieving period. And the point I'm trying to make is that there's no doubt that Lazarus is dead. Nobody is questioning whether or not Lazarus was dead. The Jewish leadership saw the body. They, they would probably even help with the, the laying on of the linen cloths. Nobody was questioning whether or not Lazarus was dead. In fact, he was so dead at this point, they rolled the rock in front of the tomb, and he was stinking dead. Nobody questioned that fact. And Jesus shows up to the scene. And he says, roll away rock. Lazarus, come forth. Now think about how preposterous that sounds right now. Think of the last funeral you were at. 
Maybe it was an open casket, maybe not. But could you imagine? There's no doubt in anybody's mind that this person is dead. They've gone to the morgue. The mortician has certified it. We are all there. We've all been weeping together. And somebody walks in. A good friend, actually, that should have been there earlier. Walks in and says, open the casket. And then calls the person out of the casket. What kind of reaction would you have to that? I don't know about you, but I think I would be an absolute shock. How could this be? So Jesus does it. He calls Lazarus forth. And what I want to examine here is found in verse 45, and it's the Jews' reaction. So Lazarus comes forth, still bound in his linen strips, his face even wrapped with cloth. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. So not only was he dead, he was stinking dead. There was no doubt about it. No one was questioning whether or not Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Now, there are three and a half years he's already been doing this ministry. Three and a half years he's been working these signs that authenticate his claim that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh, and this sign right here is the pinnacle of it all. This sign right here is irrefutable. No one can argue against this sign. In fact, so much so that, that Gen John writes, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So anytime John uses the term the Jews, he means the Jewish leadership. So when John is writing, as you're reading through the Gospel of John and you read the Jews, you can infer that John is referring to the Jewish leadership. So Bethany, right next to Jerusalem, all these Jews that were involved in leadership had come from Jerusalem up to Bethany to mourn Lazarus, and here is the impact that it has on many. Now, he doesn't give us the exact number, but we know a good deal of Jewish leaders saw the sign, heard the claim, and the result is belief. But, verse 46 starts with a but. So he's going to contrast these Jewish leaders that believed with some other Jewish leaders. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they go back to the group that they belong, the Pharisees, and they give the report. How is it that these people witness the exact same event. They have the exact same evidence smacking them in the face. And some believe and some refuse to believe. I think we'll see a little bit of why in the upcoming verses. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. So the council would be the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of elders, Sadducees, Pharisees, 
and priests. And it's kind of a political group. Now, it didn't have a whole lot of power. The, the Romans were still overseeing them, but they could make a, a couple calls here and there with, their, with uh, what was happening within Jerusalem. But they didn't have a ton of power, but they had enough. So they gathered together. Now, this shouldn't be thought of as like an official meeting. This is kind of like a behind-closed-doors meeting. They're not going to take meeting notes for this one. But they gather together, and they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And let's key in on what they said. Let's, let's, let's first see this part, the first part here. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. What's the point? The point is they're not confused about the signs. They're not confused about who Jesus is. The signs confirm it. They recognize the signs. They see that there's no arguing. The evidence is slapping them in the face. There's no arguing against the evidence. It's kind of like gravity. No one here would argue against gravity, right? Every single one of us would jump up, we fall back down, and we say, gravity is real. But what do we do about it? And that's what they're arguing. They're not arguing over whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. The, the signs authenticate the claim. The signs are so sure that there can be no other thing other than Jesus is the Messiah. There's no other claim. Jesus is the Messiah. That's how sure they are of the signs. So then what are they arguing? Well, what do we do with this? Jesus is the Messiah. The signs are very clear. What do we do with this? If we let him go on like this, if he continues this claim of being the Messiah, if he continues to grow in popularity, everyone will believe in him. Everyone's going to believe. And then what happens to us? Right now we have a lot of power. We're the Pharisees. We're the Sadducees. We control the temple. We control the synagogue. We're the most important political Jews. What happens when everybody believes? Well, they go on. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what happens when... Everybody believes that Jesus is the Messiah. The Romans will get word of it. And what are the Romans going to do? They're going to take away the place, the power, the authority of the Sanhedrin. So did the Sanhedrin really care about Israel? Did they really care about a Messiah? Or did they just care about their own power? Their own authority? Really, when it comes down to it, they wanted to continue to be God of their own life. With all of the evidence smacking them in the face, they refused to trust God, they refused to believe God, and they say, I want to continue in my rebellion, I want to continue to be my own God. So it doesn't matter what kind of sign he does, I'm still not going to believe I don't want to believe. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas then gives us this, this plot. Hey, you guys, you don't understand anything? Let's just kill him. That's what he's saying, basically. And then John gives us a little bit uh, of a commentary on that. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John gives us a little bit of commentary on Caiaphas. And he says, hey, look it. This guy didn't even understand what he was saying. He didn't even understand that what he was saying was actually prophetic, that Jesus was not only going to die for the nation, but he was going to die for all. So that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, they were scared to go from the Decapolis and Perea back to Judea, and the reason why is they were scared of getting killed, right? So what, what's new here? And I think what's new here is that before this event, before Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, all these different factions of the Sanhedrin kind of hated each other. The Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't get along. They were trying to cut each other down. They were trying to gain power. They were trying to grab their own power and take power away from the other group. So they didn't get along. They were not a united front. Now, Jesus was so popular that they couldn't just take him out back and kill him. We see in the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 that if you didn't have a following, that if you were a nobody, the Romans would turn a blind eye to the Jews who were in power when they just took someone out back and killed them himself or themselves. But Jesus was so popular, was so influential, that if they had just killed him, a riot would have started. So that's their dilemma. If we let him continue on like this, people will see him as the Messiah, Rome will hear about it, and they'll come and they'll take away our power. If we kill him in public, that will start a riot. Rome doesn't like riots, so they'll come and they'll take our power. So how can we keep our power and yet get rid of this man? And so they have to come together. They can no longer act as different factions that make up the Sanhedrin. They have to work together to develop a plot. And the plot is, if we can arrest him at night when he's just with his few followers and bring him over to the Romans and have the Romans kill him, then his blood is on the Romans' hand and they won't take away our power. That's the plot. That's what they're getting at here. But notice that they, they recognize the signs. They recognize him as the Messiah. And what is their reaction? Kill him. It's not belief. It continues in rebellion. So then Jesus, it's verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So he does that, and it's about four, two to four weeks out from the Passover, the Holy Week. And so then from there, we have record in Luke that he travels up back to Galilee. So he was in Jerusalem, the area of Judea. He travels up through uh, to Galilee. And from Galilee, he's going to travel back down to Jerusalem. Now, there were more Jews living in Galilee than in Judea. 
So this is a very strategic part on, the, on Jesus. A lot of us, we think, as we read his, the account of his life, we kind of think that he's doing things haphazardly. In fact, oftentimes we think things just kind of happen to him. I mean, how many times have we read the triumphal entry where he enters into Jerusalem and we just think, wow, that just happened? Not thinking that Jesus planned it. I think Jesus absolutely planned out the triumphal entry. He was very strategic in everything he did, including the raising of Lazarus. I think he waited four days so that Lazarus was stinking dead. I mean, he could have shown up earlier. But the whole point is, when Lazarus is stinking dead, there's no refutation. No one can say, well, he was just asleep, or he was just really ill. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that Lazarus was truly dead. Jesus did that on purpose, so that his name would be proclaimed. And then he goes up to Galilee, and on his way down from Galilee to Jerusalem, there would be tens of thousands of pilgrims walking with him. And while he's walking with these pilgrims, he once again openly preaches that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh, and he openly works miracles to authenticate that claim. And he does this as he walks down with all these tens of thousands of pilgrims. And they go all the way down to Jericho. And there he, he heals a blind man. And then they start traveling from Jericho on up. And as they travel up, they have to stop off in Bethany, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he stops in Bethany, and the tens of thousands who continue to march forward continue to talk about Jesus, the Messiah, God come in the flesh, and they are ready to welcome him as their king on Sunday. And so Jesus stops Friday, Friday night is when Sabbath starts, and he stays Friday night all the way through Saturday, Saturday night, and on Sunday, with expectation high that he will be there, he begins to travel from Bethany to Jerusalem. And as he enters, the crowds recognize exactly who he is. For three and a half years, they ha he had been among them. For three and a half years, he has been teaching them that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh. For three and a half years, he has been working signs to authenticate it. And by now, everyone would have heard that he can even raise people from the dead. There is no doubt the evidence is smacking them in the, in the face. And at this moment, he formally presents himself as the Messiah to Israel. And everybody recognizes what's going on. And so as he enters, he's riding on a donkey, and people start taking off their cloaks and laying it down. And if you didn't have a cloak, you, would, you were so excited, you'd run over to a palm tree, and you'd grab a palm branch, and you'd lay it down to welcome your king. It was so thoroughly evident to everyone there that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, God come in the flesh. No one was arguing with it except some Pharisees. And that's where we'll turn to Luke 19, verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd. So we know that these Pharisees are in the crowd. They're seeing the excitement. They've heard or seen the miracles. They've heard the claim. They know exactly what's going on. They're not confused. 
about what's going on here. They know exactly what is being presented. And that is Jesus as the Messiah, God come in the flesh. And so what is their reaction? They said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke here means to correct. They hear Hosanna. Hosanna means save me. It's associated with Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm, meaning that it is a psalm that predicts the Messiah. And so they're shouting, Hosanna, save me, save me. The Pharisees see exactly what's going on, that Jesus is being formally presented as the Messiah, and all the crowd agrees. And so their reaction is, correct them. Tell them, you've gone too far, Jesus. We'll call you a teacher. You dance circles around us when it comes to scripture. Sure, we'll call you teacher, but you've gone too far. Don't let them call you Messiah. Don't let them call out to you, save me. And what is Jesus' response? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Essentially what he's saying here is it is so obvious that I am the Messiah. The evidence so overwhelming. There's no way to argue against it. It is so clear that if everyone else was silent, the stones who have no faculty, the stones who have no brain, would cry out. Because it's that obvious. In fact, it's a pretty sharp rebuke on Jesus' behalf. He's saying, essentially, that the evidence is so overwhelming, all of creation sees it. Even stones that don't even have minds can understand it. How on earth don't you get it? That's essentially what he is telling them. And I think they clearly understand. But they don't believe. Not because they're confused. They don't believe because they are rebellious. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. They still want to be God of their own life. Throughout his ministry, it was clear that Jesus is the Messiah. He presented himself as the Messiah. He worked miracles to authenticate that claim. He even rose from the dead. Jesus is God come in the flesh to pay the price for our sins. What will it take for you to believe? Bart Ehrman is an American New Testament scholar. He focuses on textual criticism of the New Testament, the historical Jesus, the origins and development of early Christianity. He has written and edited 30 books, including three college textbooks. He has also authored six New York Times bestsellers. 
He is currently the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is one of the most distinguished New Testament scholars. And he is an atheist. He is a New Testament scholar. And with the evidence smacking him in the face, he refuses to believe. But one of the things I like about Bart Ehrman is he sees the evidence, and he sees it so clearly that, you know, there are some atheists that are like, Jesus didn't even exist. He's just a made-up myth. And Bart Ehrman says, no, the evidence for Jesus is so overwhelming, you can't even say that. In fact, when you say that, you make other atheists look like fools. And then he goes on to say, the church, the early church, had to have seen what they believed to be a resurrected Jesus. There's no way they would have done what they did. There's no way that the early church would have even existed if they hadn't believed they saw a resurrected Jesus. And this is important because so many people, and I've talked with atheists that believe this, they believe that Jesus just had good PR. I want to tell you, Jesus had the worst PR. If your PR gets you killed, that's bad PR. And in fact, the early church also had bad PR. There was no public relations that the early church had because they were getting killed. We even talked about Stephen getting stoned in Acts chapter 8. That's ridiculous that Stephen had good PR. If your PR is getting you killed, fire the dude. Well, it might be a little too late, but fire him before you get killed, right? That's not good. They had horrible PR. Beyond that, people are willing to die for what they believe is true. We see this all the time. We see this even within Christians, right? We, we believe that Christianity is true, so we're willing to die for it. But no one is willing to die for what they know is a lie. I want to say that again. No one is willing to die for what they know is a lie. If Jesus rose again was a lie, and the early church knew it for a fact, in fact, if the apostles had just conjured up a lie at the stoning of Stephen, they would have quit. They would have said, well, these Jews in the Sanhedrin are way too serious. They're killing us off. Let's stop this nonsense about this lie. My life just got really difficult. You know, when you became a Christian... You were cut off from the community, which means that you had to start kind of your own community. You couldn't go to the market anymore. Who on earth says, I know, I'm going to develop a lie where I'm a complete outcast from society. I'm going to develop a lie where they're actually uh, tempted to kill me. I can't do anything. It's going to make my life incredibly difficult. I'm going to develop that lie, and I'm never going to tell the truth. At some point, someone within the disciples, the 500 witnesses that claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus would have said, hey guys, we made it all up. Please don't kill me. But every single one of them stuck to their guns even while facing death. And they all claimed to have seen a resurrected Jesus. So Bart Ehrman takes all that evidence 
And he says it's very clear that they believe they saw a resurrected Jesus. But then he goes on to say that historians have to find the best probability. And by nature, miracles are the least probable. So when we look back throughout history, we have to find what is the most probable, and we can automatically cross out what is the least probable. So Bart Ehrman says we cannot believe in miracles because it's the least probable. So then how does he justify the early church? He says that they surely believed they saw a resurrected Jesus, but it couldn't have been because it's a miracle. So you know, they must have all hallucinated him at the same time. When pressed further, in an interview in NPR in 2014, he says, as a historian, I can certainly say that some of Jesus' followers had visions of him. So he believed that the reason the followers of Jesus would go through great lengths to preach the gospel, even if it meant their own death, is because they so thoroughly believed in the resurrection. And they had this belief not because he rose from the dead, but because they hallucinated. So he will come up with every reason except Jesus rose from the dead. Even if it's the most probable, he refuses to believe it. Even with the evidence smacking him in the face. Because this belief is a result of rebellion, not confusion. So what is holding you back from believing? What is holding you back from joining with the crowds at the triumphal entry to declare and to celebrate that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, God come in the flesh to pay the price for your sin and to reconcile you back to himself? Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you left a trail of evidence so large and so wide that we can clearly see how much you love us, that you came to this earth. You didn't need to, but you came to this earth that you created, and you paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross. And then just to prove it all, you rose again, and you appeared publicly to over 500 witnesses. And you inspired them to go and live a life, even if it meant dying, but to live a life to preach the gospel of the good news that you came, you died, and you rose. In your name we pray.